Hello, everyone. You're listening to In the Weeds, an agriculture podcast hosted by Monica Jean and the Michigan Field Crops team. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another In the Weeds with Monica Jean and the MSU Extension Field Crops team. We are happy to have you here. And today, we're going to be sharing some more um, research findings out of the Kellogg Biological Station. Um, today, we're going to be discussing the no-till versus conventionally, conventionally tilled systems that they have been evaluating out at the research station. Along with me is my uh, trusty and g wonderful co-host, Paul Gross. So thank you, Paul, for joining us again. And uh, we have Sarah here today who worked out at KBS and um, has said she just waltzed into a great data set, but I'm sure um, <laughs> she, she, had more, she had more to do with it than just that. So we're going to go around the horn and do introductions. Um, Paul, could you get us started? Of course, Monica. Thank you. It's always fun to be here in the weeds, and I'm excited to be with Sarah today to talk about uh, tillage, no-till versus conventional tillage. Uh, I'm a field crop educator in Central Michigan for over 30 years and have a lot of experience, I think, with uh, no-till, no-till systems because some of the local farms have been no-tilling for 30, 35 plus years, which is uh, kind of started off as a zone till, but we've we've really seen um, seen some farms really adapt the practices and really seen changes in their soil. So I'm really excited to talk about about that with Sarah and some of the things that the research will tell us that came out of uh, some of the work she's been a part of at KBS. Fantastic. And Sarah, do you mind giving a little introduction? I'd love to. Um, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, I'm thrilled to be here in the weeds. Um, my name is Sarah Cusser, and um, I, I got to be a postdoc at the KBS LTER um, field site for about three years between 2018 and 2021. Um, I had just finished my PhD um, in Texas looking at pollinator um, ecology in conventional cotton, and I wanted to, to move up to a Midwestern row crop. Um, so I got to start working as a postdoc at KBS, um, and, and it's pretty accurate that I waltzed into a really beautiful data set. So that's what I'll be talking about, but um, also learning from um, our brilliant hosts. Oh, well, that's so nice. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> Got to keep oh. that bar a little lower, Sarah. Yeah, that's, that's the goal. <laughs> They've listened to us several times. They may know that we're not brilliant. I'm just going <laughs> to. But thank you. Well, um, let's kind of dive right into it. Let's get in the weeds. So, let's um, get in the weeds. Yeah. I, what, did, what exactly were you guys looking at out at KBS? Yeah, such a good question. Um, so when I showed up, um, Phil Robertson, who started the LTER back in 1989, and stop me if this is something your listeners have already heard before, um, started the main cropping ecosystem experiment. I might have said that acronym in the wrong order. Sorry, Phil. Um, but uh, it, it's been this really beautiful 32 years now. 
long experiment where they had six different treatments on one hectare plots. Um, and there's seven different treatments. Two of them, which are the only two that I used for my analysis, are conventional and continuous no-till. Um, and it's a corn, soy, wheat rotation. And one of the beautiful things about an LTER is they do really fastidious, well-documented data collection every year about exactly what fertilizer they used, exactly um, how much fuel they used, what sort of problems they had that year, and then actual outputs of um, yield in mega megatons per hectare and in um, soil moisture, also nitrogen flux and a bunch of other fun variables, um, which was a perfect time to waltz in. So um, that's that's when I showed up at 30 years in, which is a great time. So over that 30 years set of data, and I've always been fascinated at the work at KBS mm -hmm. about the, the data that you've collected. Um, what are some of the, were there any ahas when you start comparing those systems? Yeah. Um, in the particular like analysis that I did, the aha was really that it's continuing to improve. So not only is no-till consistently um, better, I'm making air quotes, I know you can't see that, um, than conventional till in lots of ways, but not only is it better every year, but it continues to accrue benefits. Even after 30 years, um, it's continuing to accrue both increases in yield at our field station, as well as soil um, water holding capacity um, and profitability. So not only is it better, but it's better, better every year. You know, it's interesting that that you know you you continue to see the improvement, and I think Monica and I, in working with our farmers, we sort of see that. So, how mm -hmm. long, you know, if we're if we're working with farmers and the farmers that are listening, how long does it take from the time you start no-till in your rotation to when you start seeing benefits? That's a really great question. So you you see benefits pretty much immediately, or at least we did at KBS, which I should caveat is a single um, system. And so much of no-till depends on what soil you're on. And so I can, um, Scott Swinton, who was a co-author on this paper, would be thrilled that I mentioned that this is only one site, um, so it only represents our soil type. But um, we immediately saw benefits of no-till, even in that first year. Um, but what's interesting is those benefits accrued. So they got larger and larger every year and continue to get larger. Um, and because we did a profitability analysis and because there's, there's kind of a lag in the um, extent of that benefit, right? Like, so it's a little better, but it's not like hugely better in terms of yield or soil moisture. Um, it takes roughly 13 years to recap all of the initial investment and to consistently become profitable and um, getting higher yield. So, and it, oh, go ahead. No, I just, for the sake of, of folks that may not be familiar with, with KBS and the soil types, could you talk a little bit about the soil types that you were working with on that experiment? 
That is a really good question. Um, and I wrote it down. I'm not a soils person, so um, I'll say that first. But we have loam soils. They're well-drained, um, uh, developed on glacial outwash with soil carbon contents around 1%. Um, so we call those... for improvement. That's what yeah, we right. call that. So they're yeah. coarse, a more of a coarse textured, low organic matter type of soil is just in... in uh, Right. Yeah. And we don't, we don't tend to have much clay. Um, it's, yeah. a, it's a pretty dry soil, which, which lends itself to no-till. Yeah. Um, Could you do you know exactly maybe the, and this might be something you can't answer because the type of tillage equipment that the no-till equipment that they use, they use just a single, single, uh, single coulter opener closers. I mean, those are things uh, that, you know, we talk about a lot in the ag world about, equips and adaptation it's all about seed placement and right i have so the conventional tillage was mold board and chisel plow um and i have somewhere in here i brooke wilkie who actually implemented all these things would be able to speak like yeah. really articulately to these things um and the LTR does record all that information, so I know exactly what yeah. machine put them in every year, but I don't know it off the top of my head. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. I mean, I think, you know, I think different regions of the country, different farmers have different sort of definitions of what no-till is and isn't. But, you know, right. we, we do know comparison with the Mobart plow or a, a, <laughs> a primary tillage like a, a chisel plow. Uh, makes, yeah. And one of the interesting things about KBS is it's been consistently no-till, so never tilled in the last 30 years, which I know is slightly different um, than a conservation tillage or a, a change in interval of your tillage. But. Have the, uh, did, do you have different rotations where you were looking at? Was it, yeah. you know, corn on corn on corn, no-till, and then... Or was there just a very specific corn, soybean, wheat type of rotation? It's corn, soy, wheat every year since the beginning okay. of the experiment. Um, and so the goal of KBS was really to try and represent what a typical grower would be doing in our region um, in Western Michigan. But um, it's also an experiment. So we wanted to keep everything very consistent um, for statistical reasons and all those fun things. Um, so we try not to, it was, people really tried to keep it streamlined over the last 30 years. Another interesting thing that I think we should talk a little bit about in light of, uh, you know, our carbon sequestration, uh, carbon credits, you know, how did you talked about, you know, like what a 1% organic matter, how, how did the organic content organic matter in that soil change over time um we do have data to answer that i think it increased but i couldn't speak specifically to that um one of the uh things that i did look at was a uh, nitroxide or nitrogen flux mm -hmm. nitric oxide flux yeah. um and that didn't significantly change over time but we do have data about um soil carbon it was just there were so many um, variables to choose from that ended up really focusing on yield, soil moisture, um, nitric oxide flux, and then economic variables like profitability. All right. Can we dive into those then? 
What sure. did you guys find for like each one of, of those factors? Yeah. And so um, the purpose of our project was less to find the magnitude of each of those changes and more to find the pattern of how they change over time. I know that's a little divorced from reality, but um, so what we were really, really interested in is how consistent are these patterns? So like, should a grower go out um, and implement no-till? How long would that grower have to wait to see really consistent results? Like, irregardless of what the weather was doing, if it was a funny year, um, how long would it take to just see like very consistent accrual of benefits? And what our real take-home answer was um, is it's depending on what you're measuring. Um, so when we say no-till is good, you can define that in lots of different ways. Um, and one of the ones that we looked at was just change in yield of the corn soy wheat rotation, which is like pretty straightforward. And that took 13 years to see really consistent results. So whatever time, uh, and that means that like, even if you started in a really poor year, um, it's going to take 13 years and you're 100% going to be guaranteed accrual of benefits. Or if you start in a really good year, it's going to take less than that. But regardless of when you start, it'll take 13 years for you to consistently see benefits and yield. Um, it was a little shorter for soil moisture. So 10 years to see really consistent results, um, consistent benefits of implementing no-till, regardless of when you start, even if it's a really cruddy year. Um, and then profitability... It took 13 years to recap your initial investments, but it took 18 years to get consistent results. And so that means after 18 years, you are absolutely guaranteed in our system, regardless of when you started, that you were going to make a profit from no-till. And it's continuing to accrue after that. I, so would, I, think I would guess or assume that that has probably something to do with organic matter and how long it takes to accumulate, but... Absolutely. And so that was kind of our take-home message that um, these things that take a long time to develop, like soil carbon, um, anything really with soil, is it's, it's a long, it's not a rapid result. Um, and in the grand scheme of soils, uh, 18 years or 10 years isn't too long, but that can be a long time um, for a grower or a land manager. So um <laughs> The key is patience. And also another really interesting thing that we found was um, how often the data can be misleading if you're looking at just a short bit of it. So if you're only looking at like no-till for a three-year period, um, you're just as likely to get um, a negative result as you are as a positive result because there's just so much variability between years. And so I can imagine someone giving up on no-till after a year or two of it not performing as well as they would want to. But if you zoom out and you take a more holistic long-term approach, um, it will improve over an 18-year period. So it's just kind of getting out of those weeds, maybe you could say, and trying to see um, the whole pattern that's so important. Mm. Yeah, long-term thinking is hard. Yeah. for humans in general and so it's yeah that that was our goal was to kind of give that, a more global perspective that is yeah. uh, quite the commitment you know it's not yes. five years or eight it's 10 plus yeah right you know and i 
think, and I don't know if you looked at the data in this fashion, you know, those looking at those sets, similar, you say those three year or those small snippets of no-till, mm -hmm. how did, how did, did you look at how the conventional till did during that time period, during those three year periods and compare those? Yeah. So um, from a really basic level, it was always better in our system to do no-till. There was never a year that you got better yield or you got hmm. um, higher soil moisture. Um, but the margin of that difference was much better in certain years than in other years. And so there was like a consistent, I feel like I've used the word accrual like 200 <laughs> times, but a consistent accrual of benefits. So not only is it better each year, but it's better, better. That's that's that really interesting. Yeah. Because we always talk about those, like a no-till, you know, to, to build resilience right. into your system. And, you know, and if you compare those small periods where the no-till consistently outperformed, I mean, that, I mean, that bears out the resilience. Um, so right, in our system in particular. Yeah. So it I'll perform tillage, but you could, it wasn't consistently greater than like you didn't peak and could be, you could rely on that resiliency until was it 13 years or I don't remember significant amount of years have passed. Yeah. Greater than a decade. Right. Like, so, um, every year it was a little bit better, but the, um, rate of accrual wasn't positive like you weren't getting better better until 10 years consistently but <laughs> sorry always better though but was better, better. Though, than tillage yeah at a, in our system okay so, and was that across all of those parameters i think you said moisture yield yeah not um nitroxide flux so the nitric oxide flux that that was pretty inconsistent i think because like we were mentioning earlier, um, that is a really slow to like uh, stabilize property of the soil. So I think we are just not measuring it scales that we can detect it. Um, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's so, so interesting. This is really interesting. Uh, you know how those soils change. I, I, I kind of put my farmer hat on and think about, you know, the economics of mm -hmm. the no-till system in those time periods. Cause I always think of if it's no-till, it's one pass. When I think right. of the, the tillage part, I think of a primary tillage operation and one and maybe two secondary tillage operations, plus then the, prep, the, the, the planting pass. So it seems like in a horse race, no-till, just because of those costs, you're into the first turn almost right. cost-wise. And, you know, did the data from an economic standpoint bear that out? Absolutely. Um, so that was that was the last part of our analysis that we did, um, a pretty thorough economic analysis of the benefits of no-till. Um, and so everything that we knew about both like the conventional tillage and no-till went into determining that. So it was um, labor costs and fuel, um, machinery rental, 
herbicide, pesticide costs. Um, yeah, so everything that we knew went into it. And it it wasn't immediately profitable to do no-till, no especially back um, in the 90s. And I think some of that has to do with um, the high price of herbicide. And we weren't using transgenic crops at that point. Um, but around the time, I think 1996 and 2001, when um, transgenic crops were introduced to our rotation and um, it became uh, non-trademarked, the, the uh, generic herbicide came out, um, which was less expensive. Um, I couldn't think of the word. That is really when it took off. So um, it becomes, in, in today's modern system, um, it, it's much more cost-effective, especially with the high prices of gas. Because um, we tried to make all those estimates historically appropriate for our economic analysis. Yeah, that that's really interesting to, to follow that trend because I kind of remember that. I got a little gray hair on top of my head, but you know, <laughs> a lot of those a lot of those systems early on in those those late nineties, you know, we, we were looking at, you know, 40 bucks probably for herbicide costs, where suddenly when we got the the, the genetically modified crops, we went to fifteen. <laughs> right. Especially yeah. with, and and you know, but but right now we're we're starting to look at maybe a little bit difference because of our weed resistance and things like that, that might just start to change the dynamics a little bit. Right. Um, how are you approaching weed resistant plants on your farm or herbicide resistant weeds? Sorry. Well, you know, it's, you know, uh, don't let <laughs> an ounce of protection is worth a pound. Don't let them get their foothold in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a systems approach, and I think it it becomes a systems approach when you when you have the multiple crop rotations. You know, you, you give you kind of trick the weeds. You know, there's there's some chemistry that works really well on some of those resistant weeds in the corn part of the rotation, and you know, you can uh, uh, a real well managed rotation system you can help you manage uh your resistant weeds the other thing is if you manage them you're not you know you keep the weeds and i mean this is uh, probably weed scientists should be talking more about this than me but you know a lot of the no-tailers will talk about you know you keep them your weed seeds in that top profile you're never mixing right. them so you're never bringing up um i mean i'm not discouraging tillage as an option for for farmers, I, I know that that happens, but right. But I also think that from a no-till standpoint, you can you can manage those resistant weeds uh, in just different ways and using the right chemistry. Good answer, because that was one of the things that we were um, we got a lot of feedback from growers and from um, other academics about the looming concern about herbicide resistant weeds. Um, and that's something we were kind of struggling with at the end because we don't, we can't predict the future. Yeah. Um, and so that's really great to hear a better informed answer um, from someone who actually manages land. So thank you. Well, I, I think we, 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 and I know a lot of our specialists, I, I just love talking to Dr. Chris Stefanso uh, about IPM. She's an etymologist, but you know we talk about those resistance things and and just about practicing good IPM. 
you know, mm -hmm. not only do we rotate our crops, we rotate our modes of action. You know, we we kind of set ourselves up for failure. And I'll I'll stand on this hill and defend <laughs> it that, you know, it, it became too easy. We had the right. easy button in front of us with 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 some of our our uh, genetically modified crops where it just becomes simple. We forgot right. good IPM. Right. And, if and I think we're getting back to that. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be really interesting how yeah. how people adapt to this, how weeds adapt to this. Yeah. I'd like to go baby back a little bit to, you know, we, we saw some of those soil improvements with our no-till system, mm -hmm. you know, did, what's our conventional system flat as far as some of those positive changes you saw in, in the soil with the no-till? Right. So it wasn't exactly flat. Most of our um, comparisons, we were really just interested in the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. So every year we were just taking the difference between conventional and no-till um and because there's there's michigan has dynamic weather over time obviously um and so they kind of change in tandem like good years are good and bad years are bad um but no-till performed especially well during low rain years so when it was a little droughtier um and that's that resilience we were talking about um and conventional was was hit harder during those those droughtier years so it performed especially poorly so the difference between the two um increased so yes. it wasn't as, as straightforward as it just was consistent but they both changed and they changed relative to one another made that way too complicated but yeah that makes sense yeah the, the yeah. soil moisture would work out for you know an undisturbed ground yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and then in, in wetter years, um, the difference between the two was a little bit closer together. It was still more positive for no-till, but more comparable. Yeah. Okay. Another thing that's interesting that, you know, the, the no-tillers versus the conventional tillers we'll talk about, and I don't know if this is data that you collected, and, and uh, it, when we're talking tillage and no-till, we always talk about trafficability. Of, mm -hmm. of these fields that were undisturbed and no-till, how how the trafficability is is much better, especially huh. after rain events, uh, spring and fall versus tilled. Is that data that you looked at or wasn't that part of the experiment? No, I mean, we probably have data that could get on at that question. Um, Naive question. How do you measure tractability? Like just number of days you could be driving out there or? You know, I think there's a lot of the ag engineers and the tillage specialists are, are really oh. trying to, to to quantify that. I think that's how you say it. Uh, uh, that because and I, I know our farmers that I work with, they talk about trafficability of those fields. Uh, and no till versus uh, yeah. versus conventional, yeah. especially in the fall for harvest. And, sure. and it's just something that's very challenging to to measure. How do of you? Of course, I was standing out at a farm that was an eighty split in half. One half was rented out to a farmer who tilled conventionally, and the other half was rented out to a farmer who was no till and they used cover crops, but had been no till, right? And so. Um, that's it was just like it looked like one continuous field it just happened to be split right down the middle 40 and a 40 
and they went out to spray at about the same time. And you could see the ruts and the difficulties that the um, one side had. And there was no tracks, nothing on the other side. Um, and wow. I snapped a picture because it was just so, so crazy to see. No. That the no-till one, they had been doing no-till on that field. They had long-term contracts, hadn't had it for a long time, but it had been like six or seven years, I think he said. So still a short period right. of no-till, but yeah. That's really interesting. I would love to try and get it a measure of trafficability. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Oh, that's a really great question. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I guess... The other thing that people talk about too, and, and I don't imagine that I'm, the data is after you have no-till for 25 years, how long do you, does it take after one or two tillage years to ruin the benefits? That would be a really interesting question. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if we're ever going to find out. I mean, not ever, but yeah, we have to... Did that. We did implement um, just two years ago floral strips um, into the center of some of our plots, which is really interesting. And so that's a disturbance of a sort, but it, it's not tillage. And so we will have some idea about changing no-till to a, a different um, planting system and how long and, that takes. Through. And those prairie strips, he did post about establishment and like what you know, what goes into that in the series mm -hmm. before this. And we also did interview oh, cool. someone about the entomology impacts of having those. So very cool. If you want to learn more about those, make sure you listen to our previously posted podcast on them. Wonderful. And a plug for the previous posted podcast. So go, going back to the KBS data, we, we've talked a lot about no-till. Mm -hmm. Under what circumstances did the, the tillage system outperform? Uh, you know, the can you does the data show any advantages in time periods of a conventional tillage system? You know, to be fair with our list to our listeners, oh, absolutely. Um, to be fair, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, there were times that they were the difference was negligible, like that conventional did as well has no-till, um, and those were during really wet periods. Um, but there was, I don't think there was a single year in terms of yield or in terms of soil moisture, that it was um, that it was better in our system. So I can imagine systems that um, maybe had a slightly different soil moisture content and that those would be um, years that conventional could be better. But actually, we had no single year that it was better. Is a short answer, yeah. But there were years that it was closer. I see. Yeah. Well, and again, it depends on what you're measuring. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah. Well, um, Sarah, is there anything else that we've missed that you're really interested, like um, a tidbit we didn't share, or? No, I, I mean, this is, I feel like, an excellent opportunity to plug the importance of long-term data. So these are things that we wouldn't have been able to figure out if we had just implemented this for three years. So I guess um, 
gratitude towards Phil for starting this project in 1988. Uh, um, but yeah, no. So long-term data is important. And what KBS is doing is really unique in that respect. Awesome. Phil, or Phil, Paul, anything else? No, I, I just would echo Sarah about how thinking of how important long-term thinking is in terms of uh, of a lot of things. I mean, we always, when we start working, we start putting, you know, something away in a, in a retirement plan. That's long-term thinking. You know, we, we and I'm going to refer to one of our previous conversations, uh, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, maintenance on our equipment is long-term thinking you know mm -hmm. you know what type of maintenance long-term thinking are we going to do with our soils which are really the the basis for our farming systems and you know i guess you know farmers think in terms of seasons but i think i, I really think the importance of long-term thinking i think is really bears out with no-till and some of the work you've done there yeah definitely yeah. yeah. Well, I want to thank both of you for getting on and uh, doing another In the Weeds podcast with me. So thank you so much for joining us, especially you, Sarah, our guest. We really appreciate it. And I think there were some really clear take-home messages um, for our listeners around um, the impacts of a no-till system. So I really appreciate you getting on and sharing that. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Sarah. This podcast has been brought to you by the MSU Extension Field Crops Team. For more podcasts or information, please visit us at canr.msu.edu backslash field underscore crops. Thanks for listening.